God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. God bless and welcome back to another episode of Family Discussion. My name is Marcus Ortega. I am one of your hosts. And as always, I am joined by the charitable and kind Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you doing today? Wow, charitable and kind. Well, I, you know what? I'll take it. Um, it's, it's something to live up to for sure. I don't know that I always <laughs> do, but I try my very best. Well, hey, it's a, it's a goal, right? I think that too many people have viewed being charitable and kind as some sort of weakness or softness on truth, when it is in fact the opposite. Uh, you <laughs> know, is... and, and here's what I don't understand. Okay, so here's a passage of scripture that I know has run rampant in, secu- in secular culture and has taken on a humanistic spin. That is, and I forgot the exact location, but where Jesus says, I think it's Matthew 6, do unto others as you would have them <laughs> do unto you. Now listen, I don't care how much our culture has turned that into some kind of humanistic trope. It's scripture. Still Jesus. Like Still Jesus. our Lord Jesus mm-hmm. Christ said it himself, right? Yep. And it's something that which means is something for us to consider. So when you're wanting to take down another person, when you're wanting to read somebody uncharitably and, you know, and just go all in, ask the question, is that how I would want to be treated? That's it. And that's fair. And it's especially of those that you disagree with. Right. You know, I mean, we expect people to read us charitably. Uh, we got to read charitably with those people who maybe are on the other side of some of those debates, the other side of some of these issues, which is why we have a podcast called Family Discussion, there you go. so that we can try and disagree well with one another. Um, because it is, it is about loving one another through the way we engage charitably. Um, now, before we get into what we're doing today, which I'm really excited about, you have something on the docket coming up later this week. Now, by the time people hear this, it will it would have been passed but... and hopefully successful. <laughs> And hope so. So tell us, what is this? It's it's an exciting thing happening for you this week. Yeah. So in case anyone is not aware, the month that starts uh, September fifteenth through October fifteenth is Hispanic Heritage Month. It's actually a nationally recognized time. Uh, it was established in nineteen sixty eight. They went to a month in nineteen eighty eight, and it's really a time to recognize the legacy and history um, that Hispanic, Latino culture has had, you know, the positive impact that it's had on our society. And so you'll see a lot of events in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month. So, you know, managing an organization 
that celebrates ethnic diversity with an international focus, it just makes sense, you know, for us to do that. And it was, so I established an event in 2019. It was very small scale. And this year, two, of course, 220, uh, 2020 just kind of blew that out of the water. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so we're gearing up for the Hispanic Heritage Month celebration. It's a three-hour event. There's going to be lots of vendor booths, including some food from Colombia, Mexico, and the Philippines. Um, and there's just different, like there's nonprofit, there's going to nonprofits, there's going to be folks there selling arts and crafts and clothing. And then we have a stage program, which I'm really excited about. There's going to be a dance representing Argentina, some educational okay. presentations, and my favorite, two live bands. There you um, go. One is focused, uh, is um, they kind of do more um, Afro-Cuban jazz. And okay. then the other one is Latin pop. Um, so right. really looking forward to that. And just, oh, you know, and, and compulsively checking the weather because it's an outdoor event. <laughs> you know, but as of now, the weather's looking, at least up here, weather's looking good. And normally, uh, weather up here and weather down there aren't totally distinct from one another right. so you know looking like a beautiful weekend and you know i love these kinds of celebrations because the hispanic community is uh so diverse yes there's you know it's it's often viewed by pundits and uh, and dem uh people who do demographic studies and stuff like that it's viewed as a monolith but when you really just kind of even come close to scratching the surface on latino and uh hispanic communities you find oh the diversity here is incredible and so you can have something like afro-latin pop or afro-latin jazz and latin pop all happening kind of together in two very different sounds one from cuba one from another part of uh hispanic you know latin countries um and then yeah you, when you think of latin cuisine you think of maybe maybe most people I think think of Mexican, Mexican food, but they only they only really think of a very small portion of Mexican food yes. as well, <laughs> not the breadth of Mexican cuisine. But then as soon as you leave Mexico, you get all these incredible different yes. flavor profiles, all these different cuisines, and so uh, I am jealous that you get to do this, and I'm very excited for you. It's already. Uh, I know a lot of people signing up to come and be a part of that. So um, looking forward to hearing how successful it is. You'll have to give us an update in another episode. Yes, yes. And, and speaking of Latin American cuisine um, and the diversity, so one of my favorite places here is mm -hmm. a Peruvian restaurant. And if you all have not mm. had Peruvian food, uh, do yourself a favor and go find you a Peruvian restaurant. Oh, man. Yeah, there's a Peruvian joint not far from here that's just incredible so uh yeah it's you know i love my mexican american heritage i love our food but latin cuisine is so diverse mm -hmm. and i just encourage people to dive into the diversity that god has built into the various latin cultures that are out there which is part of what we're talking about today not necessarily latin culture but um culture in general diversity the peoples that God has made, the peoples that he has stamped his image on, built us and, and made us in his image and likeness. That's what we're talking about today. Um, we have been, for the last couple of weeks in season four, just starting to open the door and asking the question, what does it mean to be human? Who, who are we as human beings and how, how God has made us? Um, 
And today we come to this verse, really, this collection of verses in Genesis 1. So I want to read this for us. Uh, Genesis 1, verses 27 through, you know, I'm going to go through 31 because I think it's going to be helpful for us to have kind of a broader understanding of what God has been doing in the creation and why he created us. So um, let's go back to 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the bread of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So here we have a further description of the culmination of God's creation in the sixth day. He looks at everything that his hands has made, the entirety of creation and says, this is now very good. Um, and it, the, the kind of the crowning achievement of creation is the creation of man and woman in the image of God. And so we want to ask the question, what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? And Lisa, you're going to kind of, um, you're going to kind of lead us through this sure. part of the conversation. You're going to help us um, really think through some different categories. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for, for to be made in the image of God in this way or in that way? Um, what are the different components of image? How is history, how has this kind of historically been understood? Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you want to just walk us through some stuff and as it comes up, we'll chat about it. Okay, sure. So, you know, what I get out of not just, you know, starting from a historical perspective, but also what I see, you know, predominantly what I see in scripture is that man is chosen to be God's representative on the earth, to reflect that, you know, the glory back onto him. And as we talked about in a previous episode, you know, man was created as a whole person so that the immaterial part was supposed to work in conjunction with the material aspect so that as man serves as his representative it's you know it's meant to reflect what god's who god's character is what his purpose is um you know on in his good creation and so you know there are there's sort of a there's a multi-dimensional aspect to being made in the image of god um, that I think that is important, you know, theologians of different stripes have maybe focused on one or two over the other, but I do think that it's important for us to consider all of the aspects um, that we see in what we call being a human and being a human made in the image of God. So the first one is that he's, you know, man is rational, right? So, you know, the reason that man can name the animals is because he's not like them. 
right? God mm. gave man a particular agency um, that he has not given to the animals. And so we have that um, rational aspect where he's able to kind of, you know, he's given gifts and skills and, um, you know, and, and a, a capacity, you know, to, uh, to, to operate, to function in a way that's not just based on primal responses. Um, and then we have a relational aspect, right? Um, which is why he created woman, right? It is good. Mm -hmm. It is not good for a man to be alone. And so in that, we can kind of see it's not just the man and woman, but how that is reflective of all humanity. Um, and then right there in the passage, right? He, um, you know, he says, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion. So right there, there's a tie-in to what man is supposed to do in terms of God's good creation. And here's one that I think is really, really important, right? That hasn't been really reflected so well in different parts of uh, church history. And that is, if God is good, right? God has, you know, gives these ethical requirements based on who he is, his goodness. So man is supposed to reflect that those ethics, right? So everything that he does is reflected back to the glory of God. Well, we know that there's no evil in God. There's no sin. There's no guile. And so, you know, so how we reflect those ethics, I think are really important. Well, I think you've, you've laid out a really great grid for us to consider this. You know, there's, there's the idea of image itself, but then there's the different constitutive parts of image. Um, and so let's, let's walk through all of this kind of piece by piece. And the first one I think that's helpful for us is um, where does the idea of image even come from? Like, what does that mean in the ancient Near East? And, and I think that's helpful for us in understanding the role. Image is not just a, um, it's not just what we are built in. It has a duty built into it as well. There's something that we do as you're talking about the, uh, the creation mandate, the dominion, stuff like that. But, but what sits behind all of that is we are made in his image. And there are a couple of passages that I want to bring out, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, that I think um, kind of bring home for us what it means to be made in image. And the first is from the Ten Commandments. Um, because I think that this second commandment explains the idea of an image helpfully for us. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The first bit of that commandment, I think, is really helpful for us because we have image and likeness both show up in this verse. It is a very clear um, kind of couplet that we see from Genesis 1, repeated again in Exodus 20 and also in Deuteronomy. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, a representation. It is a, an image was like a totem. And in the ancient Near East, um, what idolatry was, was an image would be carved and made out of wood or stone that actually would become the medium 
through which that false god would commune with his people, right? So if you made a carved image of a fertility goddess in order to make your crops grow, that goddess would actually live in the image. That would be where it, where it resides. That's the function of the totem, of the image, is for that god to actually take up residence. That way it could commune with uh with whatever worshipers are there right so it's not that the image itself was worshipped but the god that resides within that image was worshipped we are the image of god designed therefore for god to take up residence in us that is part of the function of what it means to be image this is different than any other thing in the created order this to use New Testament church language, the Holy Spirit does not indwell other beings. God does not live within other beings, only humans, mm. because we are made in his image. That's part of the function of an image. So what the ancient Near East understood in kind of a borrowed capital way, but perverted to worship false gods, comes from how God actually made image bearers, us, image bearers. We are made in his image. And we see this in its fullness in Colossians chapter 1. So our image bearing is brought to perfection in Christ's image bearing. The human Christ is the ultimate image of God, if you will, because according to verse 15 of Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him and for him. It, he is the image. And so in a similar way to the first Adam, the second Adam is also made in the image of God. And yet the second Adam, he succeeds where the first Adam had failed. And so our flawed image bearing because of sin, and we'll... We're going to inject sin into some of this conversation um, throughout the weeks. Christ is the image of God in a way that Adam was supposed to be but failed to be, and in a way that we never could be because of sin. Mm -hmm. And so I think just understanding this theological construct of image and the way that it's understood in the ancient Near East when these texts are being written is helpful for us in understanding what is going on in, with the writer of Genesis 1 here. What are they trying to convey? Right. And I'm glad that you brought up the analogy to the, you know, the first Adam to the second Adam in terms of what it means to be made in the image of God, because I think that the closer that we get to um, that representation that is demonstrated to us and fulfilled and not fulfilled um, through the Lord Jesus Christ is to the extent that we are then um, really demonstrating what it means to be made in the image of God. And in our tradition, um, what I love is that we look at the, um, you know, the three offices of, um, you know, of what, of what Christ did. So there's, you know, prophet, priest, and king. And John Frame has a, in his systematic theology, has a very helpful analogy where he says, like, so we, um, you know, if we look at that analogy, so humans are to function in these three offices. And I think that that's very helpful. I've actually been going through the Heidelberg Catechism 
Um, I don't hey. know why it's taken me so long, but it has, of course, it has a commentary, and I recently read the same thing. And, and I think it's really helpful for us to think in those terms um, because it really, you know, and especially in our, in our current cultural moment where we have a lot of distortions, we, we see the term image of God being thrown around, but we can't just attach that to anything, right? It has to have a specific meaning in accordance with scripture. So, yeah. um, so I think thinking in terms of those three offices is helpful as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think that when, when we see Christ perfectly fulfill what it is to be imaged, especially after his resurrection, right? When he is um, glorified and so, so filled with the Holy Spirit that Paul would even say that Jesus becomes life-giving spirit in 1 Corinthians 15. There's this unity between Jesus and the Spirit that, that prefigures the unity we will have with the Spirit in our glorified state. Um, what that is, is that's, that's what image of God was always supposed to get us to. That's what we were always supposed to look like. Um, sin is what has short-circuited that. And it's, it's in our fallen state, uh, the way I try and think about this, and, and you can use office of, of prophet, priest, king here as well, it's almost like they've been vacated. Those offices have been vacated or um, the image, the totem, does not have the God dwelling within it anymore. It is it is a it is still an image. Mm -hmm. It's still an image. It still has a function it's supposed to be performing and therefore has worth and dignity, but has been vacated because God is no longer dwelling within and it requires uh, regeneration. It requires salvation for the image bearer to truly begin functioning as they are supposed to function after that. And so um, you know, when we think about the, the, the current conversations around image, a lot of weight is put on the dignity and the worth of the image bearer. And that's true. We are made in his image and likeness that has inherent dignity and worth above all the rest of the created order. But the main idea behind image bearing is we are to be filled with God. Mm -hmm. That's the function of the image there. And because of that, there's work the image bearer does, and that's why it's so directly connected to this idea of dominion or the what what reformed theologians call the, the creation mandate, yes. right? Which we'll get into. We're going to get into that a lot more next time. We're going to kind of just touch on it this time as we go. But, um, but Lisa, you, you mentioned these three constitutive parts of the image, right? The third one is the ethical. We'll get to that. I think that's where there could be some interesting conversation. Um, the second one is relational, and I really want to sit there for a second as well. But the first one, start with the first one, and we'll we'll make it through. Okay, so rational. Um, okay. You know, this idea that we are given a certain capacity to make decisions that are not based on, you know, primal instinct like the animals, right? You know, we can look at animals, although it's interesting because Scripture does tell us study the, study the animals, study the ant, right? Um, yeah. And that even in animals, God has, you know, put something there for us to, you know, for us to consider in consideration of what it means to be made in the image of God. But this idea that, you know, that we have a certain capacity to to do to, you know, to make 
to make rational choices. Now we know we're going to talk about how sin has affected that because it mm. has. And they're also, um, you know, because of the presence of sin, um, because of the fall, we know that there are different intellectual abilities, right? Not everyone has the same. And you have even those who have, who are um, intellectually developmentally disabled. Um, but in that still, we have to consider that God has placed in them a certain capacity that we need to recognize, right? And, yeah. and I'm going to interject something here. This is what frustrates me a little bit about some of our conversations around race, where mm -hmm. there is supposed, you know, where you have this idea that, well, in order to uphold the image, you have to support these ideas that in my mind contradict it right hmm. um you know you talked about you know culture the latin american culture not being a monolith and you know we have to look at at you know not just that culture but all cultures you know particularly we you know the with you know with how we've looked at you know blackness and whiteness and what does it mean you know what is, what does that mean um that there's this, sometimes I see this pushback against people who, you know, are saying, no, if I, if I go down this route, you're, you're denying my agency. Right. And I, and I think that's where it's, it's really important for us to consider, you know, all of the aspects. And so you have that, um, and, uh, that's all I have to say about that for now until we well, no, go to, think... to the rational, I mean, relationship. I mean, yeah, but, well... Yeah, but, but real quick, before we get there, I think that what you just said about the race conversation it bears emphasizing for a second here. This, in the end, becomes, and uh, I say this with fear and trembling because I know what could come by saying this, but this becomes the one of the fatal flaws of critical race theory is it is so focused on the categorization and recognizing systems and recognizing people groups, which, which are true. There are systems, there are people groups. That's a true thing. But it is so focused on that that it loses sight of individual agency that is given because of image. It becomes very difficult within that kind of a framework um, to allow for individual image bearers. Now, I think there are other frameworks that reckon the other ditch and say, well, it's only about individual image bearers and systems and people groups are irrelevant. That doesn't work either. But I think when we talk about rationality and the individual's ability to make decisions, the individual's ability to, um, to rationalize and, and consider truth, to make decisions based on truth, to be able to then teach others truth. All of that gets undercut if we purely look at the groups and the systems and ignore the individuals within those groups and systems. And so in the race conversation, as we're talking through the effects of policies on people of color or this or that, we have to recognize there is still individual image bearers built into this and the individual can get annihilated in something like critical race theory, which is one of its major flaws right. that we just have to be careful of. And, and, and here's what gets me about that. When you talk about, you know, that eradication of our individual agency, isn't this exactly what happened 
during chattel slavery, during Jim Crow, where a whole class of people were designated to not be worthy to be considered made in the image of God, right? I mean, we have even theologians um, that are, you know, historically rooted in our tradition, in our Presbyterian tradition, who blatantly said that slavery was a deserving lot. You know, you right. had, um, you know, uh, things like the curse of Ham. And so right. that was an eradication of the image of God. And I can't help but see if we, you know, if the more we focus on this group identity in the present, how are we not mirroring what happened in the past just in a different way? Maybe. I don't think I would be as strong <laughs> in that. I do think there might be an echo, but I do agree that we ought to be careful. You know, there were abominable theologies done in our tradition and held to in our tradition um, throughout the th throughout Jim Crow, throughout the antebellum South, throughout slaveholding South and North. We have to be super careful that we don't... Um, we just want to be careful that group identity does not overrule individual image bearing. That that they are held in tension. You got to have both, but when one radically overrules the other, that's where you get into some major problems. So, uh, yeah, may not put it as strongly as you just did, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. This is you know this is where we disagree well <laughs> and Absolutely. love one another well. <laughs> uh, all right, relational, relational image bearing. What? does that mean? Oh my goodness. So it's you it's basically human beings getting along to fulfill that mandate. Okay. That you know was made. Now how we do that because I know here's where we get into a little bit of tension, right? When we start thinking about gender and gender roles, which we will talk about in a later episode. It's coming um, folks, don't there worry. There are uh you know there are some theologians particularly in our tradition who really emphasized that strongly in terms yeah. of, well, you know, he made, you know, he created them male and female, but then immediately jump into the, oh, well, this means man does this and, and woman does that. You know, look, you know, we can, again, uh, it's for a later episode, but I think that we have <laughs> to really establish the baseline that together, yeah. Male and female is to create that mandate. So, yes. Here's where I have seen this go, and I'm just curious your thoughts on this. Um, because it's... I'm not sure how I feel about it. I don't think I feel good about oh, it. I'll just, I'll just put it out there. I have seen this go to a place that marriage is where the image of God is most perfectly displayed. That there is something, so this, I was taught this in seminary, and few of us pushed back, but the professor obviously holds the cards in the room. The idea that the image is somehow incomplete in the man and the woman until marriage completes it. And I really struggle with that um, for a variety of issues, let's just go initially to the children. Children are made fully in the image of God. They're not married. So I have questions there. Um, we would really struggle in it with a pro-life position holding that. 
Um, I have questions for my single brothers and sisters. I have questions for widowers. I have questions for divorcees. I have questions about that line of thinking. I'm curious if you've run into that line of thinking, what your approach is to something like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's not, you know, it's not hard to see why, because you have, you know, the male, female. And of course, this is a model for the, the fact that the marriage is between a man and a woman. Right. And then you can punt to the New Testament in, in Ephesians 5, where you have the marriage relationship as an analogy, as representative of Christ and his church. But then what do you do with, when you get to 1 Corinthians 7, right? Where Paul says, I wish that they were all like me, unattached. Paul was not married. So what are you going to do to, you know, kind of make him, you know, less than, you know, adequate because he was never married. Jesus wasn't married. You know, we are the bride of Christ, but he was not married. So, yeah. uh, you know, I think this is where things can start. Things can get out of balance. Um, so I will just leave it there because I know we have an episode coming up on gender roles. We do. We, we absolutely do. And, and here's the thing, there's this group out there called Catholics and Evangelicals together. And I long for a day that we could have a complementarians and egalitarians together. Type oh boy. Of group. Like <laughs> I just, it's one of those, and, and, and the, just to preview a later rant, I don't know how this issue became elevated to the point where we can disagree about the sacraments, but we can't disagree on this one. That just, I I can't, that's a question for other organizations and coalitions. I'll let that sit out there. there. But um, uh, the third one here, so relation, there's relational image, mm -hmm. we're created for relationship, we're created for community. That is, it sounds actually it's most beautiful expression in the church, not in marriage. Um, and that's, we'll, we'll get into that kind of, uh, conversation down the road when we get into, to, to different conversations, probably when we get to ecclesiology in like 18 seasons. But, um, number three that you had on there, uh, was ethical image. And that's really interesting to me because I don't know that I spent a lot of time thinking about it this way. So, um, what do you mean by this, that the image of God is, is displayed ethically? It's displayed ethically, right? So let's look at even what happened in the, you know, in the redemptive historical narrative of, you know, of, of um, the Bible, where God from the beginning, right, he gives mandates. So he, you know, he forms man and woman, he gives them a mandate right? Sin enters into the world, but then he draws, you know, he calls Abraham, he draws this group to himself called Israel. He gives them the mandate called the law. Um, and then we get to the New Testament, which, you know, with Christ fulfilling the law and the prophets, and this, by the way, is why the prophets had to speak against Israel, because they were going against God's mandates of how they were supposed to operate. Um, and then, you know, and then, of course, you get to, you know, Jesus's earthly ministry, um, where he is the fulfillment of promises, fulfillment, fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and then gives this mandate for the New Testament church. And so, and the, you know, we can see in the apostolic writings, how, you know, what does it mean to operate in an ethical manner. Now, here's where we get into trouble. And I think we've mentioned mentioned this in previous episodes. It's where we cherry pick based on our biases or preferred 
you know, socio-political platforms, right? And I think we see this, a lot. I see this a lot in social media, you know, well, that, you know, God doesn't like this or like, okay, so first of all, we need to think this through a little bit better because if you're talking about a particular political paradigm, right, if you're thinking about in terms of, you know, um, secular um, social paradigms, that we really need to be a little slow on the draw before we talk about this is what Jesus would do, or this is what Jesus were the better one is what Jesus, this is what Jesus would have us do. This is how Jesus would have us think when it really is endorsement of a, you know, of a particular socio-political paradigm. Um, right. and, and why I say we, we need more humility in these discussions and not, and yeah. not be so quick to talk about, you know, cause it can get very self-righteous. Um, and I've seen that a lot. Like if you don't agree with me on this particular position, because I'm holding the right ethical position, then you are not, you know, that you're um, not obeying um, the Lord's commands. We need to be careful here. We really do. And, and, and we have talked about this before, but it's worth repeating. There is a difference between um, disagreeing about what the Lord commands and disagreeing with how obedience is implemented in the public square. There's a two different, like, to care for the sojourner is clear. That's just, there is no way around that. How you do that most effectively is not prescribed in Scripture for the 21st century American political system. It's just, it's not talking to them. It's just not. It's talking to first century issues, and we now have to apply first century ideas to 21st century ideas. Mm -hmm. Don't misread me. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't speak to us today, but what I'm saying is if you're going to go through here and say, well, what should um, the Republican or Democratic platform look like on this particular issue? It's more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. It's just more complicated than that, and we have to show a lot of grace and a lot of care for how Christians live out the ethical mandates of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean there aren't ethical mandates. And that's what we're going to get into next time when we're together. We're going to talk through what's the cultural mandate? What does that even mean? What does it look like for image bearers to live out the image ethically? Because as we see, there is a, the way the scriptures speak, particularly Genesis 125. I'll read it again for us. Let us make, or 126, excuse me. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. They are combined. They're together. So what does it mean for us to have dominion? What is this thing called creation care that's floating around out there? And how do we think about those issues? So surely not going to be controversial at all when we talk about that one. Um, so there's, there's a lot of interesting conversation around the ethical display of the image of God. But I think we have to be careful... There is a, I don't think a very loud voice, but there is a voice that would divorce ethics from image. Mm -hmm. And and that's something we cannot do because immediately after bringing image bearers to life, he does, he gives them a, he gives them a law. Right. Here's what I call you to do as my people, as my, as my image in this realm. Mm -hmm. And we'll unpack a little bit more of what that looks like. Right. And punting, you know, quickly to last season when we talked about, you know, how God speaks through his word and looking at the cultural environment in which he spoke 
and gave these mandates to Old Testament Israel, to the New Testament church, um, that there were, you know, there were, there was a, a particular cultural context that he spoke in. And so I think to me, that's helpful as well. When you consider like, well, what kind of world was this? So when you, even when you look right. at, you know, the Mosaic law, and it's 613, you know, command that, you <laughs> right. know, people get nitpicky and, you know, and some would impose unfairness on God. But it's like, what did that world look like that when God says that God gives particular instruction to how you treat issues of clean, you know, clean and unclean to how you treat women? to how you treat the sojourner, what was happening in that world. And I think what, and, and what not I think, but what you'll find is the more oriented you get to that cultural context, what we see is God actually elevating humanity above what the other nations were doing. No question. And this is, the, uh, all right, we don't have time for a, pedestal moment but i'm so i'm gonna i'm gonna just kind of come up to it like a get small on your soapbox I'm I'm get on here, a step. i see a soapbox coming i'm gonna get on the step of the soapbox and not the actual soapbox because we don't have time but this is part of the exegetical and expository task it is to figure out what the cultural context is of the text that was written in that time and when you ignore it and i hear people advocate this as if the history and the culture doesn't matter because it is, it is a bare biblicism. Whatever the text says, regardless of anything going else around it in the first century, that's what we believe. No! It is written in a time, to people, by people. All of that matters. You need to know the history. And, and I'm, I'm here especially thinking of the pastors. I'm not thinking about somebody who's just trying to, to think through how do I live faithfully. Pastors who are preaching, if you don't, care about the history and the context of what words meant at the time they were written you're not doing your job you're not doing your job and it frustrates me when we bring 21st century definitions of words to first century documents as if meanings haven't changed in 2000 years they have do the work of understanding what those words meant in those times and you will see Certain things like the elevation of humanity above uh, above the status that other religions would put them in, and uh, and you see the call that God places on all human beings. We haven't even gotten to the fall and salvation yet. All human beings are blessed by God. We saw that last time, right? We are blessed by God, and then we are given a mandate, and we're going to talk through what that mandate looks like and what does it mean for us to to fulfill that. But Lisa. We got to wrap up this episode. Anything left before we dive uh, dive off the air and into next week? No, I, I just, um, you know, there's a saying I heard a while back. I don't know. It's been some years now um, that it's something to the effect of when you look into the eyes of another, just know you're looking at into the image of God. It's something like that. I'll have to find the exact exact quote, but it's. You know, it's really recognizing that people have value. And even the, you know, even the ones that grate on our nerves, maybe because they take positions that we don't agree with because they have certain personalities, that every human being is made in the image of God. Amen. 
And I'm going to say this throughout this season because it's just becoming a little bit of a catchphrase for me, but it's great to be human. It's wonderful to be human and uh, we ought to enjoy our humanity. And so um, thank you for being with us this week. We're excited about getting into the cultural mandate. We're excited about getting into what is it that God has called all human beings to do uh, as image bearers. That's next time. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you you again for joining us for this week's family discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next Family Discussion. Thank you.